welcome to another episode of Parminio. Horse and Rider. The relationship between the horse and the rider is a beautiful one. It's majestic and it's special. And it's based upon a deep sense of trust and a feeling of being safe. For the horse, the horse must learn to trust the rider, the rider's abilities, and to feel safe with the rider. And the rider must do the same, must feel safe handling the horse, riding with the horse, can trust the horse and the horse's abilities. No easy feat because the horse is a large prey animal attuned to fleeing at the first sign of danger. Now horses um, with their eyes on the sides of their heads have nearly three, 360 degree vision. However, they have two blind spots right behind them, directly behind the horse and directly in front. They have a small blind spot as well. So when you're approaching a horse, it's wise not to approach directly behind because it could startle them. And it's wise not to approach directly in front of them, but rather come in walking from the side or at an angle. So it's less likely that you'll surprise them and cause them to be startled and something bad could happen. These things all come into play as you develop a relationship with a horse, especially if you're an equestrian where you're doing events such as eventing and cross country, which involve jumping with the horses. It takes a unique combination of skills and trust to compete in these events. And they can be dangerous because of falls and whatnot. The horse and rider relationship at an advanced stage has been studied um, from a scientific standpoint. And what people who have studied this call it is, they say it's a, a state of co-being between horse and rider, where the horse and rider become attuned to each other's body movements. So a sequence of body movements by the rider tells the horse something. It tells them about future directions and what they can anticipate is coming next. So the horse and rider learn from each other somatically about how their body movements work towards each other, how the rider balances in the saddle, how they take the reins, pressure points on the horse all tell the horse something and the horse and the rider learn to participate, compete, and to be almost as one. A miscommunication can lead to an accident. So it's vitally important that the horse and the rider are deeply attuned to each other and the person that the chief of staff serves, their partner, is a unique and special one in many ways like the horse and the rider. It's one that requires a deep shared understanding and a unique and deep trust. And that takes time and it takes time to develop. Now we know, uh, for example, that the relationship that Louis Berthier had uh, with Napoleon was one that had a deep sense of trust and a deep shared understanding between the two. Um, it's often said that Berthier was the only person that can read Napoleon's handwriting. And what does that mean? Does that just mean literally he's the only person that could read Napoleon's handwriting? Or does it mean something deeper? 
Does it mean that when Berthier is reading uh, Napoleon's um, directions or command, he really understands Napoleon's intent? He can anticipate what will come next based upon certain words or phrases or how things are uh, worded together that gives Berthier deep insights into these things. And because Berthier developed such a keen and deep shared understanding of Napoleon's words and intent, he can anticipate what Napoleon wanted done and then execute those things at a high level. Those things help to create a deep level of trust because you can trust each other. It makes your operating the way that you coexist and co-being with one another effortless. You synchronize yourselves in a way of your bodies and your minds together, which makes you much more effective. This is something that takes time to develop, and of course it needs to have a deep sense of trust to go along with it. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about how you develop deep foundational trusting relationships over time. Relationships that are based upon a sense of feeling safe with each other and trusting each other's intentions and future behaviors. First of all, we're going to define what trust is and talk about a definition of that and some keywords that are used in that definition. We're going to talk about what trust enables. And then we're going to talk about three dimensions of trust. Cognitive trust, effective trust, and behavioral trust. And we're going to get into what each of those mean and how you can develop those three things in your relationship with the person that you partner with and work for. All right, let's get into a definition of trust. And this comes from Rousseau in in 1998, some work that they did. And their definition of trust was this. It is being vulnerable based upon positive expectations of intentions and behaviors of another. Four key words in there I want to look at. The first one is vulnerable. Second one is expectations. Third one is intent, and the fourth one is behaviors. And let's talk about those words and what they mean a little bit from this definition. So the definition, again, is being vulnerable based upon positive expectations of intentions and behaviors of another. So becoming vulnerable means you're putting yourself at risk. If I'm the CEO and I've asked you to take upon a high-profile initiative, or I've asked you to represent me at an event of external people and speak for the company, if you don't perform well and you're not competent to handle that, um, you're going to make me experience a loss. And so I'm becoming vulnerable to you. So that's what it means in this sense. The second word is expectations, and it's in the definition, again, becoming being vulnerable based upon positive expectations. Let's talk about expectations and how vital they are to developing trusting relationships. Expectations and dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, it's a reward transmitter, are inextricably intertwined with one another. So as expectations go, so go levels of dopamine. And it kind of works like this. If I'm thinking about going and getting my favorite cappuccino and an incredible piece of chocolate cake, thinking about it in the future, 
will increase my expectations for it. And I'll start to feel good based upon having that expectation. I'm rewarded, so I get an increase in dopamine. And then when I go eat it, it's even better than I thought. And so I get another increase in dopamine and it makes me feel good again. Expectations and dopamine, as we said, are intertwined with one another. If I have a positive expectation in you as my chief of staff to execute and do something for me, go speak for me and I feel a loss associated with you and so it's going to make me less likely that I'm going to have you do that again um, unless over time you build back up an element of trust in me from you to do that. So understanding expectations and what your partner's expectations are of you in terms of your job and specific things that you're doing in your role are vitally important. Every time that you meet or exceed your partner's expectations, you are building a deeper sense of trust because they're being rewarded for opening up opportunities for you you're exceeding or meeting or exceeding their expectations. They have positive events associated with it. They have an increase in dopamine. They're rewarded for it. So they feel better about you and they become more trusting of you over time. That is the evolution of how expectation works in relation to trust. Two other words I just want to talk about in the definition are intentions and behavior. So I'm becoming vulnerable based upon my positive expectations of you. And one of the things is I, I think your intentions are good for me. Uh, they're good for what we're trying to do. You have care and consideration, you're benevolent. So I trust your intentions. And the final word is behaviors. How are you going to perform? Are you confident? Are you reliable? And if I feel positive about those things, I'm going to give you more opportunities as my chief of staff to perform, more high-risk opportunities perform, uh, more opportunities to serve as my delegate, to speak for me. And so you're going to be able to expand your role and do, uh, achieve much greater things based upon a higher level of trust. All right, so that's a definition of trust by Rousseau. And you can see how important expectations are to that and becoming vulnerable are, as well as intentions and behaviors. Now, some work by Dirks and Farron, uh, they did research on trust and what they said, and this is no shock to anybody, that in trust in an interpersonal relationship enhances cooperation. Uh, we can just see from that definition of trust how that works. It also opens communication between two people and it increases the commitment between two people. So as you're building a deep foundation of trust with your partner over time, you're gonna have greater commitment, greater openness in terms of communication, and greater cooperation, which allows you to achieve more things. Um, you don't even have to say it, but if your partner doesn't trust you and doesn't have a high level of trust in you, it's really gonna limit your opportunity to be successful. So building trust is the foundation for any successful chief of staff. All right, let's get into the dimensions of trust, which we had mentioned earlier. It's cognitive trust, uh, affective trust, and behavioral trust. We're going to get into each of those. Cognitive trust has to do with competence and reliability, things like that, your performance. Affective trust has to do with care and consideration. This person really cares about me. 
And behavioral has to do with um, putting all these pieces together. How does someone behave? Do they show judgment? Are they poised? Are they an attentive listener? Do they make me feel heard and appreciated? And I have to do a lot with body language, so we're going to get into those things. I like to say that behavioral is kind of the wrapping on the, on the presence here. All right, so cognitive trust has to do with competence, reliability, and integrity. So competence has to do with your knowledge, your your skill sets, your ability to perform. And every time you're demonstrating your competence and you're successful and you're meeting or exceeding my expectations, my trust in your competence level increases, right? Reliability has to do with repeated performances. So you're consistent, you're repeating your performances over and over, and as I see that and you're meeting or exceeding my expectations, I trust you more. And integrity has to do with a set of principles. This person operates with a set of principles and they're consistent. I can trust their behaviors because they're consistent and they have integrity. Now I was talking to a chief of staff in Los Angeles and this person was telling me that um, they had recently been allowed to do uh, serve as a proxy or a delegate for the CEO and it was a group of included some external people but this was really the first or second time that they had been allowed to do that most of the other situations were all internal and the person said that they performed well and it went well and, and the, the boss the CEO got positive feedback from from this uh, chief of staff other people who had been to the meeting but he, he mentioned he senses a lot of, a sense of hesitation among, from his boss, the CEO, to let him do more things like that, right? And, you know, that makes sense. So the first question is, if you're going to be acting as a proxy or as a delegate, is it, a, is it an appropriate situation? Should you be doing that versus the CEO? And that requires, that's one of judgment, of course, and depending upon context and what's happening. But one of the things I said that you can do to increase your exposure and your competence levels is if you're using the cognitive apprenticeship approach. And that's the approach they use to transfer tacit knowledge, expert knowledge from the teacher to the student. And that consists of modeling, coaching, fading and scaffolding, uh, articulation, reflection and exploration. If you're using those different skill sets with your, with your boss, in this case the CEO, you can ask them for coaching advice. You can video or audio tape you talking and acting as a representative of the CEO using a consistent language, common themes, the vision, the mission, the strategy of the organization, having a deep sense of knowledge about what is going on in the organization and talking about it using simple themes and consistent language. And then asking for feedback and demonstrating your skill sets and demonstrating the fact that you're doing and learning to become a better speaker and to speak in ways that represent your partner's viewpoints very, very succinctly. So that's important. So cognitive apprenticeship is a very good way to demonstrate your competence and to increase the trust that your partner has in you by interacting back and forth and having them coach you at the same time. So that's one good way to build competence um, through as an art, uh, a relationship e sequentially, interaction after interaction. And it also adds to a sense of reliability because this 
person, the CEO, can see that you're putting in tremendous effort into learning to be a better representative and delegate for them, and they can see your progress as you're um, getting better, and it gives them more confidence to place you in situations to act as a delegate. Um, and then, of course, you're acting with integrity through a set of principles, and your behavior is consistent and such. So as you're doing those things, you're developing a greater sense of cognitive trust with your partner. Effective trust has to do with benevolence and consideration and care. So what I want my partner to do or to know is that I genuinely care about their success, about their welfare, their health, their happiness, their life. And so I interact with them in ways that demonstrate this. I'm not just this person here as a chief of staff trying to climb the corporate ladder. I generally want to see them happy and achieving things that are special and fun and unique and I take an interest in that and so I, I demonstrate that to them I demonstrate that I have my intentions are for the best uh, of them personally and the organization and the goals of the organization those things all align so I want to make sure I take an interest in showing these things to my my boss and partner and asking them and being friendly with them and being positive about them. If I see them in a, in a certain, they're down, or I can see something's bothering them, um, ask them if they want to speak and open up and talk about things. And if they do, let's have a conversation. If now's not the appropriate time, we can, we can talk later. So that's effective trust. So if I'm building cognitive trust, I'm building effective trust, I'm increasing the overall foundation of trust between myself and my partner, they are going to have greater expectations of my abilities and they're going to allow me to do more things within the organization. More high profile initiatives and projects, taking on more opportunities that involve some element of risk and making my partner feel a little bit vulnerable. And then when I'm performing, their trust increases and their confidence increases in me. The last element of trust we're going to talk about is behavioral. When we talk about behavioral, it's kind of the, the wrapper over both cognitive and effective trust, and it's how I behave. It's how my body uh, tells other people and communicates things, right? We're going to talk about three specific elements of behavioral and body language, and that's attentive listening, uh, attentive speaking, and poise and calm under fire and executive presence. And if I'm doing these things, these three things really well, I can build a deeper sense of trust with my partner. Now, research that's been done on body language tells us that body, nonverbal, is 93% of what's communicated to another person. So it's very important. Um, one research project that was done um, looked at the body and facial gestures of all the presidents from like 1946 up until last year. And they, they examined the presidents during their inauguration. They looked at them from facial and body language. And a couple of things they looked at were hand gestures. And the other thing they looked at was smiles. And in the smiles, Obama smiled more during his inauguration than any other presidential inauguration. Now, smiling indicates optimism, warmth, and openness. And that kind of fits in with the profile of what people think about Obama, right? Hope, 
and change, right? So it fits in with his, his demeanor and the message that he's sending. Also, when it comes to hand gestures, Obama used 612 hand gestures during his inauguration. It was the second most of any uh, presidential uh, elected person who had had an inauguration. And um, Jimmy Carter, during his inauguration, used zero hand gestures. Now, one thing about hand gestures is they demonstrate presence. Other people feel them. We are wired to automatically understand hand gestures from other people when they use them, such as palms open, other people feel them. Palms open is a submissive cooperative hand gesture and people understand what it means. So when we're using hand gestures appropriately, it helps to build a greater sense of trust with other people that we're speaking to. All right, so we're gonna talk about attentive listening and how that builds trust. So attentive listening has to do with making the other person that I'm listening to, um, they feel heard, they feel appreciated, they feel acknowledged, they feel understood. Now how I do that is a couple of ways. I use a combination of extended eye contact and maintaining eye contact with them at the same time while I'm using cooperative uh, facial gestures. And cooperative facial gestures are things like nodding my head, um, a specific submissive type smile, which says openness again, tilting my head to the side, which is a submissive um, body facial gesture, raising my eyebrows as I nod my head. All of those things can be done in concert in unison with extended eye contact. So I'm maintaining extended eye contact with the speaker. I'm nodding my head. I'm, I'm giving them smiles back, not overly doing any of these things in appropriate amounts. And as I maintain extended eye contact, they then feel heard and appreciated. Now you have to do these things in a very unified manner. You can't do too much of it. You can't do too little. And what the research on extended eye contact tells us is this. If you're able to maintain extended eye contact, 30 to 60 seconds or longer when you're listening and or speaking to somebody. Research that's been done by uh, Moberg shows us that people are likely to release the neurotransmitter oxytocin in their body. Now, oxytocin is kind of a, a bonding, feel safe, trusting neurotransmitter. So if I'm listening to somebody and we're maintaining extended eye contact in the appropriate ways, I'm maintaining eye contact, I'm nodding my head, I'm just giving them cooperative body gestures and facial gestures, it's highly likely that they will have an increase in oxytocin associated with me in that event, and they will feel more trusting of me. They will feel better about me, so that helps to increase trust. If you're gonna do this, highly suggest it's something that you practice to do. Um, you can't just gaze and stare at somebody without doing the other appropriate uh, facial gestures because they'll feel awkward and weird like you're just staring at them, right? So you gotta incorporate it with the appropriate facial gestures. And if you do these things right, um, it'll increase their oxytocin release. They'll feel better and more trusting of you. Also, if you're listening to somebody and showing interest and you're really interested in what they're saying, it's likely that your pupils will dilate. Now research shows us that 
I don't even have to be consciously aware that your pupils are dilated. We pick it up again subconsciously. And because I feel that your pupils are dilated, I feel you have an interest in your hearing me. And so I feel a greater sense of acknowledgement and appreciation. These things are cooperative gestures. And as you're maintaining extended eye contact, more than 30 or 60 seconds, again, it's highly likely that the other person and you will have events which release oxytocin, which promote feelings of trust. Um, if you want to see a really good example of this, it's on, there's, a, there's a video on YouTube. It's called Clinton Debate Moments, and it's about Bill Clinton's debate moment when he's speaking to somebody in a town hall style event. And if you watch that clip, again, Clinton Debate Moments, look it up on YouTube. If you measure how long he maintains eye contact with the member of the audience when he's speaking to her, it's well over 95% which is very, very long from a percentage standpoint. Now, research shows that most people only maintain eye contact when they're speaking to others. On average, 60%. So you know when Bill Clinton's doing this, he's practiced this many, many, many times, and he's a very fluent and charismatic speaker. So you can do the same things, and it's something that you can practice and perfect over time to increase your trust with other people. And in terms of body language, the final thing is around being poised and calm under fire and ex demonstrating executive presence. If you're in stressful and challenging situations and you have poise and you're competent and you're under control, people will see this and they will feel more trusting of you. Um, so you want to practice these things. But how can you become better and poised and under control and as a, a better speaker is you can do rehearsals. You can, you can videotape yourself, you can tape yourself on audio, giving presentations, speaking as a representative of your partner, the CEO, talking about vision and mission and the goals of the organization or whatever it may be to become a better speaker and become more poised under control. Another thing you can do is mental visualizations of common scenarios that you find yourself in or you're likely to find yourself in at any time in the future to practice. Because as you practice mentally and visually, you've gone through these scenarios before and then when you actually experience it, you've done it before. So you have a higher level of confidence. You can be more poised and under control. Uh, just as a point on that, Michael Phelps, who is widely considered to be the greatest swimmer ever, uh, when he was in training uh, for the Olympics and things like that, he would do mental rehearsals two hours a day. That's over and above the, the actual physical practice in the swimming pool. When he would do mental rehearsals, he would get into the pool. He would close his eyes, imagine himself swimming, imagine hearing the crowd. He would imagine himself making a mistake and hearing the crowd go, ooh, and then how he might recover from that. And so mental rehearsals are a very important step in terms of increasing your performance and your poise under challenging situations. So that's something that you can do. You can also do meditation, deep breathing exercises, nature walks, all these things are calming influences on you. All right, so that's the behavioral aspects of how you can increase trust in your relationship with your partner. So we went through cognitive aspects, and it has to do with 
competence, reliability, and integrity. We talked about effective trust, that's benevolence and care and consideration. And we talked about behavioral examples of using your body language to create congruency. And when you're listening to people, you're attentive. When you're speaking to people, you're doing the same thing. You're maintaining eye contact and using hand gestures and body gestures. And in all situations, you're poised and calm under fire. All of these things will help to deepen the level of trust you have with your partner as well as anybody else that you come into contact with in a, from a relationship standpoint. And doing all these things, what we want to do is build a deep foundation of trust with our partner, which will allow us to be much more successful in our roles and develop a very special and unique relationship just like the horse and the rider. Thank you once again for listening to another episode of Parminio.